0: Welcome to this ground up. The birth of the World Wide Web and the invention of the Internet was only a few decades ago. The magnitude of that invention and the advancements that have since occurred in computing and communications are not only connecting humans across nations but fundamentally changing their lives as we speak. Since each new idea, innovation, and technology brings us transformative potential, there is a growing belief that the ongoing technology transformation in the cyberspace would play a central role in increasing equality and fairness and bring us power to transform the world in not only cyberspace, but also geospace and space, in short referred to as CGS. While cyberspace can bring us a force of equality, the dawn of artificial intelligence, in short referred to as AI, is also giving us a promise of a level playing field across CGS where everyone irrespective of race, religion, class or connections would have an equal opportunity in not only education but employment, entrepreneurship, survival, success, satisfaction and a shot at prosperity. However, as machine intelligence is becoming more ubiquitous and systems are being controlled in not only cyberspace, but also geospace and space. The emergence of evidence and data of biased algorithms is leading to growing concerns of algorithms making judgment false. So how are machine learning algorithms becoming biased? What are the implications for nations, its government, industries, organizations, and academia? I shall refer to as NGIOA. To discuss biased algorithms, I'm delighted to welcome Lars Wood to Risk Roundup. Lars Wood is the CEO of QuizWam and also heads Lars Research, a Montana company deploying patent pending quantum artificial intelligence, he shall refer to as QAI, cognitive reactor, collective intelligence for cryptocurrency blockchain, solo and pool mining. In addition, Lars is also a visiting scientist at MIT, CIA, FBI, NSA, 5,000 more. He's based in the United States. Welcome, Lars. We are honored to have you on Risk Roundup. Thank you very
1: much. I'm happy to be here.
0: Wonderful. So the digital global age gave us a hope that the ongoing technology transformation would bring the much needed equality, transparency, fairness, and a level playing field. While the potential for technology transformation across CGS remains and is huge, is the ongoing technology transformation bringing us a tool for equality and fairness?
1: Well, uh, with respect to Uh, machine learning, specifically supervised learning, which is uh, the majority of what's taking place. Uh, Many years ago, when I was a chief scientist at GT Government Systems, which is now uh, parts of General Dynamics and Verizon, uh, we had the the first uh, large-scale Department of Defense contract for machine learning uh, using algorithms that uh, I invented. That were supervised learning. They were, uh, patented by GTE and, uh, the implementation, uh, was interesting because the, uh, it was, we found it to be impossible to not have bias, uh, in the results. And, uh, you can think of it this way that the supervised learning algorithms are, uh, for all intents and purposes, what's called a match filter. A match filter is a digital signal processing technique. Uh, the difference between, that does the same thing as a, as a supervised learning uh, algorithm does, like backpropagation and others. Uh, the difference is that you have to program the match filter. It takes a lot of sophistication to do that. The, the, uh, with the neural network, you train it. But it has its own set of difficulties. Um, the main issue is that. Uh, the neural network, uh, the supervised learning neural networks, really want to not be general. In other words, what you like to have is broad generalization, so you pick up a lot of uh, cases that you haven't trained into the system. Uh, but the algorithms don't want to do that. They, they want to be very narrow. And so in order to, in order, in order to make the, force them, this is what you have to do, force the algorithms to have good generalization you have to overfit the, uh, the training sets in different directions. This is completely independent of dirty data or a human doing it or what have you. It's just how these uh, the supervised algorithms work. If you don't do that, they will not work. They will have poor generalization. Uh, the result of this is that it's like having a bug that you can never get rid of. Okay. And uh, when we, it, our project was very successful. But we had to bias, in order for it to work, we had to bias the system, the, the uh, supervised learning algorithms. We had to bias the, the training sets to be selective toward the problem that the government wanted us to detect, which is a very complex problem in uh, satellite communications. However, uh, in discussions, there were two, two big things came out of this, as I said. One was a question, this is back in 1989, one was a question, uh, what's the difference between, you know, what's the difference between existing technology and, and the neural networks? And the other one was, you know, can you ever get away from this overfitting thing? And as I said earlier, the only difference, the, the neural networks, the supervised learning algorithms are, are, are effectively match filters that you don't program. That's, they're the same thing, they do the same thing, and match filters have been around forever. So have neural networks for that matter. However, because of these issues, they went into disfavor. Um, Many years ago, Marvin Minsky uh, wrote a a book called Perceptrons, which discredited uh, supervised learning for almost a decade. And I spoke to him about this, and and he was concerned about the claims that Rosenblatt, who, First came out with the perceptron, which is the kind of supervised learning, uh, was making and basically really smashed them pretty good. However, uh, even myself, in the case of my own work back then, uh, Rich Sutton, who was a colleague of mine, he's the one of the uh, two, uh, he and Andy Bartow invented uh, reinforcement learning. Uh, Rich is at University of Calgary and Andy's at UMass Amherst in uh, Massachusetts. and. Uh, Rich was concerned, because during this period of time, GTE was a, a center for machine learning and artificial intelligence. All of ainterest There was a whole lot of people there, uh, researchers, that were of high regard with respect to machine learning and artificial intelligence, and I ran the of, all the artificial intelligence laboratories at GT government Systems. The, um, Rich was concerned that uh, the supervised learning algorithms would uh, not converge. And uh, from a theoretical perspective, he's correct, because uh, things like backpropagation cannot, uh, there's no convergence proof. Uh, and so what you have to do is you have to basically train them to a good enough. So if you train them to be very close to full convergence, that generally is not good because you'll have very narrow generalization. So generalization is being able to recognize a man from a woman, for example, okay, as, as humans. <coughs> the, uh, if you, if you get below like 70% uh, convergence, the generalization uh, is, is spotty. Okay? Uh, so we'll recognize some things, but all others. So between 75 and 85% we found was a good area. So you didn't have to get full convergence. In fact, it wasn't even desirable. Uh, all this stuff that's taking place today, the algorithms are no different than they were back then. In fact, Jeffrey Hinton, who I had spoken to about this back in the late 80s when he was uh, uh, working with uh, Rummelhart, who I knew personally. Uh, Rummelhart was actually the primary inventor of backpropagation where, and working with Hinton. He died of Pick's disease uh, and actually visited me at my laboratory at GTE uh, and gave a talk at the labs. Um, this, this issue has always been there. but the uh, Backpropagation, These supervised learning algorithms, are the easiest to implement and the algorithms have not changed. What's changed is the computer processing power has increased dramatically. It's very fast. um, But more importantly, very cheap. Uh, As a result of that software infrastructure, so you don't have to be really sophisticated to use these systems. There's all kinds of toolkits and so forth available now to facilitate, facilitate building these things. The problem is with the ease of use, is that people uh, don't understand that there are these risks so associated with uh, these technologies and as it has been shown with apple they have grossly underestimated with the uh, iphone x uh, its ability to do facial recognition they have had you know some pretty embarrassing uh in japan i believe some people created a, a wax or a rubber mask and was able to fool their facial recognition they've been able to uh have the uh uh, uh, these types of algorithms uh, think a, uh, a picture of a children in a field is a gun. Okay? It's, if you understand how the, how the algorithms are biased, okay, or, or the training sets, how they have to train, uh, then you can fool the algorithm. So this is actually uh, a vulnerability. So it's like something you can hack into as well. So you can, you can literally uh, hack into uh, uh, neural networks that are supervised learning uh, because you can exploit their bias, so it's a, it's a, it's a, it's it's a, it's not a kind of issue where, you know, you're gonna uh, uh, like somebody uh, comes out with a, a gun and robs a bank type of issue. Okay, it's an insidious issue where you won't necessarily know it's taking place. Uh, it's it's it will just it's it's just embedded. So, uh, for example, online test testing scoring, uh, loan applications all these kinds of things and, and in fact the head of research uh, the head of the machine learning research at Google um, joked during an interview or rather a talk he gave because Elon Musk has been talking about the uh, killer robots and all this kind of nonsense okay which is not quite that's impossible with the current machine learning it's not even close uh, because the uh, uh, these machine learning algorithms <coughs> it's like building it's like uh, construction technology. Uh, you'll be able to make some really tall buildings, uh, but you'll never reach the moon. You can't. So so the, he said, this is to say, the head of research, uh, Google Machine Learning Research, watch out for machine learning bias. That's the, that's the problem. And they, everybody recognizes it that understands the technology. Uh, the, the problem is it's starting to go everywhere. And uh, it can, it, it's, it, you're going to have people, I mean, I even would question if I know the machine learning is involved, with, uh, I, and then I know it's going to be supervised learning because uh, uh, with the exception of QAI, there is no reinforcement learning technology that doesn't take hordes and hordes of data. Uh, mm-hmm. Google tried this and, uh, with AlphaGo, and they were, uh, uh, they were successful to an extent. Uh, uh, but the problem was it tech- took a ton of data. But that's because of, you know, the way they implemented it. That, the approach we've taken is completely different. It's a fine grain learning, so uh, these little, you can think of these little tiny uh, neurons that don't learn very much, learning very quickly, all in parallel. So it's, a, it's very different than the existing machine learning, uh, rather reinforcement learning algorithms. However, the yeah. big the issue is that as a result of that, Andy Eng, who was formerly of, um, I forget the name, well, he was, he was the Google of China, uh, it sort of set the direction for the Chinese to basically use supervised learning and everybody's going in this direction. And it's just going to, it's just going to cause these very subtle you know, problems that cannot be engineered around. It has nothing to do with dirty data. You cannot fix it. You cannot, uh, you cannot use another neural network to try to get rid of it because that one has the same problems okay so it, it it's it's a fundamental flaw in all supervised learning algorithms that cannot be removed uh, so that's that's an issue
0: yes now i hear you on that and you gave a really good comprehensive uh, understanding about where what the problem is and why we are here where we, uh, you know where we are addressing or where we are talking about this very critical issue and uh, as you said that uh, humans they introduced this bias in that for the system to work, like you said, you know, the government wanted uh, certain uh, uh, functionality or w- they wanted to address certain issues. So the, there was a need to I- insert the embedded bias into the machine learning neural network uh, algorithm that you were developing. And uh, same is the problem, you know, just like, you know, all the software developers. They are focused on functionality and they don't focus on the security. And similarly, here also, to make the algorithm do what the uh, designer wants it to do, the software designer, we are not thinking about how it's going to impact, what the broader impact is going to be as the algorithm gets... Uh, bigger and bigger and is, as it gets uh, embedded into uh, much larger systems not only at local level but you know national level or global level so as artificial intelligence tries to be dependable dependable digital data recorder we are seeing all these numerous ai based tools technologies and processes that are trickling into everything from driving directions to dream jobs, loan applications to college applications, and so much more. Uh, Governments are using it, industries are using it, organizations are using it, and even NGOs and uh, academia, everybody is using it now. So amidst this growing visible science that the digital global age has decided to depend on the AI-based digital data information infrastructure, do we have any dependable algorithm at this point?
1: No. The, 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 be clear. I want to be clear on this, uh, and I've actually I actually said this on LinkedIn in response to somebody uh, that was saying, you know, well, it's the people design, you know, that are that creating the training sets. It doesn't make it's fundamental to the algorithms. Uh, it, it has nothing to do with the person uh, that's designing the training set. So even if God were to create the training set to be perfect, it would still be skewed. You can't help it. If you had a machine that was doing it, it would still be biased so these these supervised learning algorithms are fundamentally and inherently biased. You cannot get away from it. It doesn't make a difference how you try okay so uh, the, the, given that these supervised learning algorithms are so easy to deploy in contrast to uh, uh, unsupervised or reinforcement or recurrent networks and a whole bunch of others the uh, you know the, the the supervised learning algorithms are ridiculously easy to use it do, it, it, for example, uh, if you were designing a match filter you 'd have to have the, the sophistication of a, at least a master 's level degree in um, a, a digital filter design to be able to do a match filter okay with a, a supervised learning uh, neural network uh, you can you don 't need anything that 's very it 's trivial to, to to use the toolkits uh, it 's almost like you know, uh, uh, what they used to call script kiddies the hackers that really don't know how to write the, the the viruses. They basically get the tools and they just apply the tools. It's the same kind of idea. The point being is that you can't get it out. And because everybody is using this these supervised learning algorithms, it's going to be everywhere. And uh, the only way that you can deal with it at this point in time is to be aware of it. In, in other words, question the results of the output of these systems. If you don't feel that something makes sense, question it because it could be biased. You know, the uh, and it may me it may not be biased on you know, uh, seventy out of a hundred, but the other thirty it could be, and it you know and it could biased uh, like for example uh, another example was uh, the facial recognition that I believe again Apple was using was was uh, 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 thinking that, uh, or, or resolving, they don't really think, it really is pattern recognition systems, uh, that, uh, people, black people were apes. Okay. It was identifying them as gorillas and things like that. So, uh, these are all a, a result of this. And so the way they fix it is that, you know, management calls and say, Hey, we got a problem and, uh, the engineer goes back and Essentially, play, you know the whack-a-mole game where you—it's a child, you know, in an arcade where you you hit the little hammer and you knock these things down, and they keep popping up in different directions. And, you, and the idea is how many, how fast can you knock them down, and that's how you get score. The um, it's like that kind of game. So what the engineer does is you know push in another direction, and that opens up another bias. You follow what I'm saying? So that you really—it's like having a a technology which is fundamentally Flawed uh, that you're you, that you're using to to do important things. Now, uh, if you if you understand what the uh, the narrow nature uh, of this and the and the and, and with the bias that's involved, you can have reasonable success. So, for example, the <coughs> technology we deployed for the government, which resulted in, in a three hundred fifty million dollar contract many years ago, um, that worked the way it was supposed to, but we knew that, you know, where the the holes were and and, uh, we're able to, uh, you know, when the results came back that were not the way we wanted them to be, uh, we we understood what the issue was. Today, because of the way that they're using these things, uh, they they just apply them like some kind of black box and you can't do that, okay, because if you do, you're going to run into trouble, might not be right away because these neural networks are ridiculously hard to to debug. Okay? That's one of the problems that we encountered. All machine learning systems are like this? You think about bugs in software. Machine learning bugs are the worst because the software tries to correct effectively for the bug. So you could take, it takes you much longer to find logic bugs in uh, machine learning systems than it does in other systems that, in other words, less to think this breaks uh, because it, it it tries to adapt based upon you know the bug in the software. So so it's a, it's really a, a, you know a, a a big problem that uh, is going to affect everybody around the world. Decision support systems are being implemented with this stuff, and it's all supervised learning, all supervised learning.
0: Yes, I hear you. And I mean, we expect machines to be compassionate outside of their rigid point of view and free of these human biases and be objective. But as you are saying that the technology is fundamentally flawed and there is no way out of it. So what can be done? I mean, is it possible for intelligent machines to be objective? Will we be able to fix this problem that is uh, growing so rapidly? And uh, are intelligent machines that we are trying to create based on this supervised learning and neural networks, are they defined and designed to be inherently objective or are they purposely designed as we talked before, you know, to have some short term goals that we are defining, we are introducing bias. And sometimes we are not even introducing bias that the data that we are using, it is biased. And uh, that, you know, there are so many other variables And uh, so many other entry points where the bias just uh, enters. So what can be done? What what are the options for us?
1: There's only, if you're going to use supervised learning, there's only one option. And that is to have human intervention. And that's what we did, uh, you know, back in the late 80s, when we saw these kinds of things. You have to have human intervention. You cannot just believe the outputs blindly. You must have human intervention. So if there are questionable results, you have to have the human in the loop to, to basically override what the system is uh, is uh, recognizing. That's the only way. So, the, the, you know, because humans, you know, don't make these kinds of insidious mistakes unless there's something wrong with them, of course. Uh, but, you know, if you don't have a human being involved uh, to basically make sure that the supervised learning algorithms uh, don't result in incorrect uh, pattern recognition because that's all they are. Okay, I don't care if they're deep networks or you know uh, uh, three-dimensional networks, or, I don't care what they are. They're all based, anything based upon supervised learning, whether there's a training set, with, where there's an error that's propagated back through the network, where weights are adjusted, where there's simple processing units, you're going to have this problem. And the, the only way to deal with it is to have humans involved. The problem is that um, Because of the cheap availability of this stuff, I mean, anybody can do this. Uh, You're not going to have this. kind. You can have these apps that arise that uh, uh, have this bias, and uh, there won't be any human being involved because the people treat them as black boxes. That's the huge problem. Uh, I had a – one of my mentors was Eric Ellingson, who was uh, was the – chief engineer at the MITRE Corporation, which is the think tank for the Air Force. And uh, he always would say, you know, you cannot apply any of these, even in digital signal processing, like a Kalman filter, we had problems, we were trying to uh, project the trajectory of uh, inter- intercontinental ballistic missiles uh, for intercept. And this is back in, you know, the style, uh, Space Defense Initiative. and. Uh, you know, people would say, well, we'll use a Kalman filter, which is good at that. Uh, and he would say, no, that's not how to do it. You need to first work it out by hand to understand what's going on before you just throw a black box at it. Once you apply the black box, then you can understand where the black box uh, has shortcomings. And that's what they have to do here. But the problem is, you know, it'll be so widespread, uh, it just won't happen, except in the Huge corporations. Uh, the government should have regulations that there's human intervention for the uh, supervised learning systems that they are implementing. Uh, and, and we're not—we're not even talking about talking about nefarious applications of, you know, supervised learning where they're trying to recognize, you know, classes of people or something like that, or or, or educational background. Who knows? We're talking about just normal use. So you have to have human intervention. This is the only way to deal with the problem. You can't engineer it away. It's impossible.
0: No, I hear you on that, but you, you make a very interesting point that we have to have humans involved at each stage. So what, what, what is the role of the humans when we are talking about these machine learning techniques that are so complex and obscure in their workings? I mean, it seems like we may not be able to get clarity on bias by simply assessing the data. Uh, or the details of the data or the algorithm, what kind of algorithm we are using. So, what is the potential of bias to, that creeps into the AI? And uh, how can humans, I- with their involvement, how can they control that bias in uh, getting into the uh, algorithms? And uh, what can be, uh, what can human do differently that these uh, neural networks are uh,
1: doing? The only thing that can be done is a human override. So that you can basically say, I don't like the results of this test. And then there's, by regulation, and that's the only one that's going to be done because otherwise people won't do it. You need to have a law that basically says for some of these important things like healthcare or what have you, that there's a human override. That you can basically say, I don't like this diagnosis. I don't, you know, that uh, this thing came out with. And, uh, and so I want to have a human intervention take place. That's the only way. So with the healthcare, it's the most dangerous, in my opinion, because you you know these, these pattern recognition systems are you know have a high can diagnose in incorrect ways due to the bias. So you need to have the ability to to make a, a push a button and say I don't agree with this. Just like you can have a second opinion with a doctor, you have a right to a second opinion in both healthcare uh, providers uh, relative to insurance and so forth. You have to have the ability to, be, to say, I don't agree with this, because so, otherwise what you're going to get uh, is that, well the, well, the machine learning can't be wrong, because the people that use this stuff have no clue. Uh, you know, the machine learning can't be wrong, so that's just what it is. It must be true. You have to have the ability, by law, to be able to say, I want human intervention here. I don't agree with the results. Period. and End of story
0: but the lads we can have, uh, the legal aspects uh, and regulations they are a whole different story we can discuss that but how do we first find bias in this uh, mind of machines that you know is being developed is there any test for that
1: the, the only way it's only by exception that you're going to find it so in other words when something goes wrong it's it's a, it's sort of you know uh, uh, it's like a, a, a proof by 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 breaking it so you're only going to find it by uh, you know, that it, that it does the wrong thing. Some of these folks that have been, uh, you know, attacking the vulnerabilities of these uh, machine learning, uh, these supervised learning systems, because that's really the only one that has the problem, uh, supervised learning. the Anything that has a training set is biased. So the, uh, uh, and that's why I don't use them. Uh, and that's why when I, I saw this way back in the late 80s, early 90s, I said, I'm not going to have anything to do with this. I'm going in a different direction and it took me a long time to to work through the issues but we've been successful but in in terms of supervised learning uh there's no way to engineer around it the only way that you're going to find out that there's an issue is that somebody's going to complain and if they don't complain just going to go on like nothing went wrong
0: sure but there needs to be an understanding to be able to complain and not the common people individuals and uh, and entities that are using this they, they don't have understanding corporations maybe you know they're a technical department, they have some understanding about what is happening, what kind of uh, bias has gotten into the machine learning system that they have developed for uh, screening the applicants uh, to call them for interviews or any other purpose that they have. But the common people, they don't have an understanding that anyone anyone applying for an interview uh, for a job. They don't know how the applications are going to be screened. So when they don't get called, they just expect that, oh, they didn't make a cut. But they, did, they don't understand that they didn't make a cut because of maybe, you know, there is a bias that has gotten into the system. So the problem of this bias in machine learning is likely to become more significant as the technology spreads across NGIOA and as more people without a deep technical understanding, as they are tasked with deploying it. So the problem is that we don't know how widespread the machine learning based decision making technology is at this point. Is it even possible to know how widely adopted AI, this uh, neural networks and uh, uh, supervised learning is currently and uh, whether we can, uh, whether there is any testing going on, whether there is any organization that is involved in testing all these algorithms because for softwares, we have version one, version two, version three. So we know which version has bugs and whether we can, you know, effectively remove that. But with these machine learning technologies, uh, algorithms, uh, there are no different versions. So no. we are stuck. We are stuck with you know what we have.
1: That's right. So you can. It is possible to have versioning on the tr- on the training sets and on the you know on the uh, supervised learning, but you generally don't hear about it because all they do is they it's it's modified in the back end. Um, of the system, and then it just results in a new neural network that basically they deploy immediately after testing so uh you, you can version anything of course so but the point being is that you really the only way that i 've been able to i mean it 's the way we deal dealt with the problem uh is a manual override where you basically can say I, this doesn 't look right, and i 'm going to question the results, and you have to have that ability in the same sense that you can you can uh you know file a uh, a complaint um, for uh, discrimination, this is nothing more than a different form of discrimination, if you think about it. So, uh, so the uh, discrimination laws could be easily applied to these machine learning systems by just saying, I disagree with this. I, I believe I've been discriminated against. And that's what it really is, because it's biased you out of some class or put you into one, you're probably not going to complain. If you're biased into something that's good, but you're going to be unhappy if you're biased out of something. So the uh, you, you, if you treat it as a discrimination, uh, then existing laws could be applied to deal with it. But the uh, you know you have to have the ability to have a manual override where you can basically say, I disagree with this. And the basis for that is probably you know uh, currently existing discrimination laws that basically are are, are meant to deal with human discrimination, but here, because the humans are being replaced by these supervised machine learning systems to do a lot of the work that they used to do for filtering and so forth. Just like on the telephone, how many times have you worked with the Verizon or or your, you know, pick your provider and the thing is, you know, happily saying, it sounds like you're unhappy, do you want to talk to a human being? And you just, I just keep saying, agent, 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 agent. Because I know, because I worked at GT, I knew what they were doing. And I, and I, and I knew the, the flaws of these systems way before they were deployed. Um, GT Laboratories had an extensive um, speech recognition research program going on that led to the kind of stuff you see today where they, you, you, know, you, you don't talk to operators anymore unless you say agent several times. There's a human override there you say agent you know, or operator or whatever, a number of times that system is going to kick out and basically bring a human being in. And that's exactly what has to take place. I mean, th- that speech recognition is a kind of mach- machine learning, okay? It may not be based upon neural networks, but nonetheless, uh, it's a kind of pattern recognition that comes from artificial intelligence research. Same thing with vision processing systems. Um, They're commonplace today. It used to be considered artificial intelligence because of the heuristics that were involved. Neural networks in the old days of artificial intelligence were a tiny little piece of artificial intelligence that many people didn't like because of uh, Marvin Minsky's critique of those systems. He shut down PhD theses for over a decade in this stuff, okay, because he basically said this stuff is garbage, doesn't work well. And, and, the, uh, and so if you are a PhD candidate and you're going to say, I'm going to present my, this is what I want to do for a thesis. And you're going to go and basically say, I want to do something that the top guy in the field says is garbage. No. Okay. And so no PhD students were using neural networks for any of this kind of stuff for over a decade. Uh, and as I said, I talked to Marvin Minsky about this and he said uh, he was just so pissed off, that's what he said to me. Uh, that um, that Rosenblatt had made these outrageous claims about what these things can do, uh, that he basically, you know, maybe he maybe he went he went overboard uh, because it certainly did, you know, cha- you know, put a damper on the whole research area for a long time. In fact, when when I got into it, that's why you know people were saying, oh, well, that's bad stuff. All my AI colleagues were saying this to me. You know, mm-hmm. be careful of that. But you have to You just really have to if you're going to use the stuff, and I wouldn't. Okay, I wouldn't go near supervised learning with a 10-foot pole. Okay, uh, but, but in terms of um, it being out there because it's easy to deploy or any variant of it is easy to deploy. Even Jeffrey Hinton, who's been pushing this stuff with Google, he was interviewed, uh, 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 you know, I, I saw a month or so ago and, and thought that, you know, maybe back propagation isn't so great. He knew it wasn't great a long time ago. Okay, Jeffrey Hinton's a smart guy. And he, I mean, I, I've spoken to him, you know, back before he was with Google and famous and everything else when he was doing the Bolson machine back in the 80s. And uh, he understood the issues with this stuff. Okay, he worked closely with Rummelhart, and I knew Rummahart really well. So the, the point being is that um, you really have to have a human override and, uh, you know, apply existing laws to basically say, I feel like I've been discriminated against because there are no, you know, I, I've been. Yeah, I don't, there's no machine learning bias laws, but there are discrimination laws. Sure. And the difference if it's a human being or a stupid supervised learning, you know, pattern recognition system, if you feel like you've been discriminated against, file, file discrimination, you know, complaint in whatever venue you happen to be.
0: No, I hear you on that. And that's an excellent point that you made about human override by continuing to say, you know, agent, agent, and uh, then we would be connected to a human, you know, after a few minutes, hopefully. But uh, like you said, you know, I mean, uh, there is a need for this kind of accountability and uh, there is a need to promote equality, transparency in this algorithm design. And uh, we... so far, we were, you know, having challenges with the tilted level uh, playing field in the geo space, but and we were hoping that cyberspace is going to level the playing field and everyone will get the same opportunity and accountability and the equality and transparency and fairness. But it seems that because of this, you know, the way the algorithms are being developed and the bias is, you know, uh, getting embedded in that, that this is also becoming tilted. So, uh, like you say, that we have to use the laws. Of discrimination, in you know, for the we don't have the laws on algorithms. It will take maybe you know probably a decade before we come up with an effective regulatory system or effective you know legal and judicial system for the machine learning and um, the robots and algorithms and all of this uh, drones and everything. But at this point, we don't have that infrastructure. So we have the question is I mean we don't we have. Like you suggested, we should use the laws of discrimination, but do we even have effective rules of regulations that can focus, that can be effectively translated into this algorithm accountability because how do we measure performance of the algorithms? Do we have effective benchmarks? There are a lot of things we can do in geospace in the discrimination because it's visible and uh, we can record that. But to measure the performance or to record that, these kind of challenges, in the algorithm, supervised algorithms. It's very difficult. So how do we go forward on that?
1: Well, some people have done some of these things already by, you know, these well-known exploits where, you know, uh, people that are more or less from the the white hat hacking community that try to find vulnerabilities in software, this is just another vulnerability. Uh, Bias is just another vulnerability. So, you know, that's why you know, you have these people, researchers at universities and so forth that uh, create rubber masks and things like that, and, or take pictures that exploit the vulnerability and point it out. And that's the, it's that sort of activity that needs to continue uh, to basically punch holes in this stuff uh, and, and to, to, you know, make it so that people understand what they're dealing with. Uh, because, you know, as I said, it won't ever go away. But the only way is to manage it. It's like you can't get rid of, you can't get rid of, you know, uh, criminals in society. It's just they're always going to be there, uh, and you just try to minimize the I- impact um, through different types of things that society does. And so these white hat uh, people that are involved in, you know, trying to find these uh, exploits of these machine learning systems. Um, need to continue doing that because I guarantee you that the the nefarious hacker community is already licking their lips, so to speak, with respect to exploiting these machine learning systems as they, uh, you know, form their attacks. And uh, as people start to use supervised learning for, you know, data protection and that sort of thing. Or preventing data from being corrupted, what have you? Uh, it's going to be possible for these people to bypass these things and get things in into these systems. Like, look at the blockchain with Bitcoin, right? How many, how many people? I mean, h- hundreds of millions of dollars have been lost as a result of uh, as a result of uh, you know hackers inje- injecting stuff into the blockchain. That's one of the big problems with blockchain is that. You know, if you get something bad in there, it spreads all over every place. You've got to shut down the whole network in order to be able to uh, deal with it. Um, So the point being is that it's just a matter of society having to use human beings to manage the technology and realizing, you know, that everybody needs to realize everybody, you know, because it affects everybody, so even if you're not a technical person, you need, to be, you need to know that, uh, that supervised machine learning can be biased uh, against you or your family or someone else, and to question the results. Don't just accept them blindly because the AI s- said so, all right? That's the worst thing that people can do. And no company that has any ethical standing would ever say something like that. I mean, I, if they did, I would be highly question them, or any government that would say something like that. Um, so you really have to have human intervention and use existing laws because there are no machine learning laws uh, at this point to uh, to question the results and challenge them. And just don't if, if somebody says to you, uh, you know, your diagnosis is this because the machine said this. Okay, that's a red flag. Anybody ever said that to me? I'd say I don't want to hear that. I want a second opinion by a human being that basically is not going to. You know that, that I can trust you can 't trust any algorithm you, know, you can 't trust an algorithm
0: sure, and I think I hear you on that the in u k they have uh uh regulation that, you know, if a machine makes a decision, then you have a right to challenge that and you have a right to uh, have a human, you know, look at all the data points and uh, appeal to that. So yes, like you said, we do need uh, humans involved and any organization has a right to build any intelligent machine the way they want to, they supervise learning, unsupervised learning with, you know, whatever bias they want to, uh, you know, embed into that. They have a right to do that because it's a private organization, but when it comes to the application for systems, to, when their algorithm is expected to be used for a public system or uh, at any level, I mean, local, national, global, may, and maybe for government agencies or for education institutions or corporations trying to uh, hire, you know, people or courts or prisons, then we need an objective as well as established best practices as to whose algorithm can be used for equality, fairness, and objectivity right now, it doesn't seem like there is any committee or any organization looking into that that whose uh, algorithms that are being developed uh, are fair and uh, objective, that we can use it in prisons or we can use it for government pension systems or healthcare systems. We don't have any such organization. So um, do we, From at least from my understanding, we don't have any organization, but do do we have any organization that... Uh, test different version of algorithms uh, to and rate them for public use.
1: It's really not the algorithms issue. The algorithm is the flaw, but the but the problem is in the results. So yes. what you end up with is a is a, is a basically a bunch of data that's that's uh, processed using the the neural net supervised learning algorithms, which are effectively uh, you know uh, little feed forward networks generally, where you have inputs that. Connect to other out, outputs, which connect to other outputs, and so forth. And the uh, and this and the and, and I mean, this is what you're dealing with is basically, you know, a little. If you think about it, little wires that have numerical weights on them that uh, uh, create a weighted average of whatever goes in. And then there's an accumulator, which is the neuron. Very simple. Nothing like a real neuron. Uh, and so it's extremely simple technology. Uh, it's the, So it's the system that results that needs to be tested. And the only way you can do that uh, is by, you know, applying it to different problems, trying to find vulnerabilities, because you can bet that the people that implement these systems, they test them, but they, at least at the big companies. But, you know, they, they develop a group consensus, and so they can't know to test it in ways that, you know, doesn't get the product out the door, so to speak, with, uh, without, you know, ridiculous delays. So again, remember I told you that you can only train these things to 70%. You can't, you can't, if you go any, or uh, between, you know, above 70%, but not to hundred uh, percent convergence, because not only is that not possible, but that re- that results in very narrow selection in the pattern recognition. You need to have, so there's vagueness built into these, to the results. So the only way to deal with it is to um, have a human intervention either by somebody else testing the stuff independently and showing the flaws um, and people being generally aware, number two, that there's issues with this stuff, and number three, that uh, you have the right to challenge the results. Those are the three only three, three ways to deal with it. In yeah,
0: that, sure. 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 That's a fair point, but I think we, from what I'm hearing is that probably we need... Uh, to partner these intelligent systems or algorithms that are being developed with people who can mentor them over time and to look into, you know, just like a mother would tell a child that, look, this is right. And this is wrong. You should not do this. And this is how, you know, uh, you can be an ethically, you know, accountable human being when you grow up. So the algorithms are also in you know, a probably very infant stage and we need to develop these mentors who can, uh, work with these algorithms, work with these intelligent systems that are being developed and uh, train them or mentor them to do the right thing and to get the bias out of the system, to audit them and to uh, make sure that we develop these accountable systems that are you know, fair and equal. And it's important to understand that unlike the systems in geospace, there are no established methods to test the digital systems for safety, fairness, or effectiveness in cyberspace. So we also need to develop these effective tools to um, test
1: algorithms, right? Now you can't can't get the bias out. I'll tell you something else that happened. You know, uh, many years ago when I was uh, working at uh, GT Government Systems, I spoke to a pilot and they had this big program to integrate into the F-15, which at that point in time was a very new air superiority fireplane. plane. And uh, they wanted to integrate voice recognition into the cockpit. So that the pilot could issue verbal commands they use, uh, they didn 't use supervised learning, uh, but they use you know the types of uh, voice recognition technology that is commonplace today. The interesting thing is it didn 't work they threw it out program failed and the reason was because um, when the uh, pilot is taking g force in other words as you 're diving or something like that, and you 're taking g forces during a maneuver uh, where the, you're, this IG forces your voice changes, okay? And the voice recognition system would say, I don't know who you are anymore in the middle of a crisis, you follow what I'm saying? So this, the bias is always in, in these kinds of systems that are deployed based upon recognizing some you know, canonical representation of something. If you don't have continuous um, unsupervised reinforcement learning you cannot have, you know, unbiased, unbiased systems. It's just not possible. And the the biggest problem is, you know, there's bias in other AI systems too. The, but but those those systems, like things like uh, Watson, there's bias in Watson. That's why it didn't do well in healthcare when it first, you know, they did great in Jeopardy. But you know, studying, learning from Wikipedia and diagnosing people is a completely different thing. Okay, it failed miserably. Uh, in, the, in, the, in the first deployments of uh, Watson, IBM Watson, in the healthcare industry, the um, so it's it's the problem is also uh, made more complex by the people that are working on these uh, systems uh, not knowing what they're not knowing what they're doing. Let me explain what I mean by that. They may know very well how to, how the neural network works and so forth and the limitations of it but they might not know uh, the deployment environment very well. And that's what happened, for example, with IBM Watson, which is not just, it, it, it has a lot, IBM Watson is a giant knowledge-based system. And when they, they trained it to recognize everything in jeopardy, it did really good I mean, in Wikipedia and therefore it did well in jeopardy. But the, the same kinds of information is not available in Health quick here. Generally, and you know from being in life sciences, you know, zillions of papers are published every year, and only a few of those are any good, okay, in life sciences. So what the researchers thought was, gee, if we just look at all the research papers, we'll be great. Wrong. Okay? So because of their lack of understanding of the domain that they were in, they were basically training Watson to look at all this junk that doesn't make any difference. You follow? So. That, that's another part of the problem is that the AI researcher may not be knowledgeable uh, in, the sp- in the deployment space. Uh, they may be knowledgeable in saying, okay, give me the training sets and I'll you know, uh, did, they, they know how to say things like this. I need examples that look like this. Okay, I need some extrema because that's how you train these systems. You have extrema of examples okay, of things. And uh, then they can massage them, and then they can encode them. They know how to do all these things if they are, you know, they know what they're doing. I'm not talking about people applying like black boxes. Somebody that knows how to apply the algorithms really, engineer them, (coughs) like some, you know, really good data scientists and things like that. Um, But they're not going to understand necessarily the actual domain. That's why when I, you know, was in life sciences, and I was doing quantum chemistry stuff, I designed real molecules. Okay? I designed real therapeutic compounds that actually worked. Because, you know, and I have a saying you don't know if it's going to work until it doesn't. All right? So you have to, you, have to, you know, get in there and apply the thing, and you, and you can't just rely upon somebody else to, to give you input and you come out with an output. Because they're not going to necessarily know, you know, other than the thing doesn't work, what happened. So, it's, you know, this is something that I see lacking generally. Is that people over-specialize and they basically don't have the ability to take into consideration, you know, points of view. I, during my work in doing uh, uh, drug discovery, early stage drug discovery, I was always amazed at these at these computational chemists at some of the crap that they would come out with. Literally, you know, these molecular structures that nobody could build. Okay, um, that you you know what I'm talking about from being in life sciences, you know. I mean, computational chemists would come up with these things that would be, you know, very elegant molecular structures, you know, using their technology. However, you know, nobody, you might be able to build one. You might be able to find a synthetic chemist to build one, okay? But you could never get it into production. It would be impossible, too costly. So they don't take into consideration these things. Or clinical trials, you know, they basically don't understand, they, you know, they, don't, they never understood, I saw you know what really happens in clinical trials. What causes drugs to fail? So if you don't understand the, the thing, the, the system, what's taking place from soup to nuts, okay, then you're not going to be able to understand what the issues are and and, uh, and you know and be able to say, okay, well this is where my system might break down. And that's why you're having these things take place at Apple and other places where the system breaks because the guys, people that are doing this stuff don't have that background and so they're not, they're not looking for it. You follow what I'm saying?
0: Yes, yes, of course, I hear you on that. So, um, I mean, we do need uh, that kind of uh, diverse uh, committee or, you know, uh, diverse group of people who work together because, you know, we don't want the single-minded thinking. But also coming back to the point about the algorithms that are already very deeply embedded into the human That's society, over human systems. And they are already biased, so what are your recommendations? How do we go forward do, and how do which or which algorithms at this point, if we talk about the United States, which algorithms needs outside review that concerns you at this point
1: it 's a pickle that 's what it is okay you really because um, you can 't know when you 're being evaluated by you know a neural network, the supervised learning system, you just don 't know because these things are like embedded they 're embedded inside. And it's so easy to deploy this stuff now. And the processing speed, I mean, you can put these things on cell phones, okay? Or even smaller. You can put them on an iWatch. Uh, it doesn't take much. In the old days, you know, you couldn't. You had to have fairly powerful machines, but that power is now available in these little bitty things. So the uh, you really you really don't know when it's going to hit you. You just have to be aware and be educated. That's about the problem. <clears throat> um, and it's really just a pickle. You just can't get away from it. And that's why I moved away from this stuff years ago. And you know, it's really fundamental to how these supervised learning algorithms work. They just are biased. It's just the way that you cannot get away from that. It has nothing to do with the training sets. You know, as I said earlier, if if a a machine was designing these training sets, wouldn't have anything to do. They would still be biased. So it's a matter that uh, uh, it's just something that's you know, you have to take the good with the bad. There's some with things that can take place from this stuff it's not like it's going to destroy the world or be used to uh you know control the the, the red button on uh, on the president's desk to you know set loose nuclear weapons or something like that because people know better okay uh, for that sort of thing but the but the point being is that you know it's going to be there that there's going to be these you know insidious things taking place hopefully the benefits associated with what comes out will be worth, the, worth, you know, worth the, the downside risk.
0: But is that the approach that we should be taking, that we should just accept that yes, this bias would be there. There's nothing we can do about it. If you can- Is, is that supposed to go far
1: As long as the supervised learning algorithms are used, you can't get away from it. The only way, technically, if you wanna basically get away from it, you gotta to go to unsupervised reinforcement learning, period, end of story, that's it, okay? You just got to drop supervised learning like I did. I stopped using that stuff in '93. okay, 1993. It was just, I knew it was a dead end. <clears throat> so I stopped using it and went away from it altogether. You have to use reinforcement learning, uh, unsupervised reinforcement learning. The problem is most people don't know how to use that stuff. Uh, and it took me a long time, you know, decades to get it so that it would actually be uh, used. So, because i came from a, a perspective of supervised learning systems and so when i started to use reinforcement learning systems i was kind of using it that way you follow what i'm saying in other words it's like you have a, a new tool but you don't have, but you're using the new tool like you use the old tool and that didn't, that's no good okay so you have to you have to think from a completely different perspective which means how you engineer the reinforcement learning has to be very different than yeah. you know, Sure,
0: I agree with you that we do need a new approach, but the challenge with these systems, once we develop, it's very hard to overturn because there's so much investment that has gone into that. And, you know, there are so many high profile players that are involved in those systems. So once the system becomes established and it has become st- start becoming you know widely accepted and used then it's very difficult to overturn that and say, you know, insert another new technology or new process that is more effective, that is not biased, and that gives us the accountability and equality and fairness that we are looking for because these are entirely different issues we are talking about. It's not just technology or processes. It's about the investment and investors and the system that has already got embedded. So there are very complex challenges we are facing here.
1: Yeah, you've got that nailed. These are very complex challenges, and all you can hope for is, literally is as long as these supervised learning systems are in place, that people become aware that they should challenge the results if they don't feel they're correct. You know, they should do so. Uh, they should use existing laws uh, that, are, that are in existence uh, to file complaints and so forth. Just because it doesn't make a difference if it's a human, you know, discriminating or, or, or an algorithm. Uh, you know, or more specifically, the training, you know, how this thing's deployed. Uh, people shouldn't be deploying these things in, in mission-critical applications where there could be, uh, you know, possibilities for uh, this kind of algorithmic abuse, if you would. Uh, it's, uh, but you can't stop it because there's no regulations. People do what they're going to do. But the, 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 thing, the thing is, you know, education and knowledge about these systems, not just believing that, uh, you know, that they're the end all, uh, and until and and, and they're going to be there. And even when you know uh, reinforcement learning starts to uh, become the, overturn all this stuff. And, and that and I and I think that was I did it. So other people will do it too. Uh, the uh, I mean, Rich Sutton's been working on this stuff since I've known him. Uh, he's my age. He's sixty-three years old. And I, and I and I and I knew him. You know, when he was first doing this stuff uh, as a uh, when he came out of Stanford with his uh, PhD in computer science, uh, and uh, uh, he uh, he's been working on reinforcement learning forever. He hasn't been swayed, okay. And if you talk to him, uh, he will tell you. Well, he's not as outspoken as I am. He's a little bit more more politically correct in that sense. But the uh, but in the, in the context that uh, he uh, he sees the issues with this. And privately, when I was using this stuff. Back way back when, and he was, I was, you know, I had an office uh, re, right near his at GT Laboratories. He was saying that stuff is crap. Don't use it, you know. And and he even wrote, he even wrote a paper, saying that you know it wouldn't work. Okay, but, but he was incorrect because you could get it to work by not having 100% convergence. But the problem is that if it's if it's not 100% convergence, okay, for, for number one, 100% convergence doesn't work. Okay. Uh, number two, if it's not 100% convergent, it does work, but it's going to be biased. You follow know what I'm saying? All right. So, so you're you're stuck with with how the stuff works. You cannot get away from it. All right. If you could get 100% convergence, that means that every single thing that you did worked, and it has perfect generalization. That doesn't happen. Okay. That never happens. All right. So they would never shoot for it. it. It doesn't. It results in. Oh, it results in. Too narrow selection, you you know, if you try to go for that kind of, um, you know, training results. Because what happens is, you know, like in backpropagation, you get, uh, you have a a, a data set and then it propagates through the network using very simple calculations. And then you get a numerical result that comes out and you compare that to the desired result. And so you can basically say you made a mistake and, you know, have the, uh, the, the, for example, backpropagation, uh, propagate the error back through the network, making small changes on the links because that 's where it takes place. The nodes don 't have anything to do with this it 's all on the links, and that 's where the weightings are and uh, and then you try it again, so you can keep you know ch- making that error correction over and over and over again to like twenty decimal places. But if you do that what 's going to happen is that you 're going to have you know very narrow selection it 's going to be very brittle, and that 's why you can 't do it you have to have. The system be somewhat fuzzy for it to work and generalize well, but at the same time that results in bias. So you're stuck with it.
0: Yes, we are stuck with it at least uh, for now until we figure out, you know, how to correct it and how. This is just like you know, human learning versus machine learning, and humans, you know, we learn in a very different way. The the way our brain works is very different. The machines, they learn in a very different way. So hopefully that this machine, the uh, supervised uh, learning and the supervised machine learning And the data sets that they're using that as, you know, and it's very complex and we don't know what variables get inserted. We don't know how the mistakes happen. We don't know how, I mean, we, we do know few areas where they know how the the bias gets uh, embedded, but there are a lot more, you know, complex uh, things that are happening when we are developing these algorithms and systems. So hopefully that in the coming years, someone, you know, who is working uh, to overcome all these uh, biases, we'll be able to figure out how to audit these algorithms and how to correct them and hopefully come up with a better ways to uh, make it a fair and uh, equal system. But until then, let's talk about the approach that you have developed, which doesn't uh, uh, involve the supervised learning and which uh, hopefully does not create the biased algorithms that are, you know, the talk of this discussion, and we are trying to uh, prevent that you know bias getting into these algorithms. So, uh, let's talk about the QAI and how it addresses the complex challenges of the
1: algorithm bias. So, QAI uh, is an unsupervised reinforcement learning system uh, that uses uh, um, a couple of different technologies. It, uh, uh, it uses this uh, first and foremost, it uses this something I call quantum signaling. Uh, quantum signaling. Uh, is uh, is a kind of wave propagation. So, uh, if you send a message, uh, if a neuron inside QAI um, sends a message, there are no connections. And so what I was, neurons of QAI don't have connections. Okay, uh, in neural networks that exist today, supervised learning systems, the connections are the locus of activity, not the neurons. Okay, and, and real brains don't work like that. There's no error signal being propagated back. For your brain, basically saying adjust all these ne- these weights and the links. Okay, uh, the uh, so QAI does not is connectionless. Current neural networks use connections. Uh, it's, it's even that's called the paradigm. It's called the connectionist paradigm. It's been around for decades. Uh, QAI is a connectionless paradigm. The neurons communicate through um, message diffusion, where the messages diffuse. Like if you were to throw a, a pebble into a into a um, into a pond, and you'd have this wave spread. It's it's it, that's how QA, that's how neurons and QAI communicate. You have a, you have a message diffusion, but it's quantum uh, message diffusion because it obeys the laws of quantum mechanics. Meaning that if I, if you if you threw a pebble into a pond, you'd have a wave propagate, and you and it would and, it, and there are other pebble there are other rocks, for example. Uh, the wave would propagate against the, the, the rock, and there may be some reflections, but it would continue to propagate, uh, and, and, and quantum mechanically that doesn't take place. As soon as, as, soon as the wave uh, hits so, something, uh, like the rock in our example, uh, the wave stops, it goes away, and, and it doesn't propagate any further, under, except under very special circumstances, which have to do with, if there are two, uh, if there are two rocks in our example, where the wave is propagating and hits them at the same time. They'll both receive the message. So using this quantum signaling uh, results in a, a kind of self-organization that um, I was able to discover this by using it to model um, um, uh, molecular systems in a new kind of quantum chemistry that I call energy mechanics, which doesn't use the conventional approach to, to uh, 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 molecular orbitals and so forth. in the in the technology I invented, uh, the, using quantum signaling, what happens is that uh, each particle uh, radiates, as I described, using this quantum signaling, and the interactions, which are you know uh, you know uh, on the order of uh, move towards something or, move, or being repelled from something, result in the structures that you know define chemical bonds and so forth. Okay, so the first thing was this quantum signaling that I implemented. Now. The, uh, the other thing was the actual reinforcement learning. Most reinforcement learning systems require lots of data and ridiculous amounts of time to train. I saw that. I knew this is a problem uh, for forever. I knew this. So uh, what I did was I, I came up with an approach that that just measure, that, that doesn't that doesn't use the direct signal as the uh, reinforcement learning basis for decisions. Instead, what I did was the following. Let's say you have a signal come in, and uh, let's say it, uh, it's, a, it's a signal that varies between zero and one. Let's say it's, a, it's a, uh, based upon, and, and QAI looks at information entropy. And it fits well with the quantum signaling because it's looking at the information entropy, that is to say the randomness associated with the, uh, the signals that are flying around inside the cognitive reactor. Um, the, uh, and so what it does is it, it looks at that signal, and then, it tries, and then what it does is it solves a very simple task. What it does is it, each each neuron uh, moves a, 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 a location pointer on a little track. It's inside the neuron uh, to reflect the the, uh, the input to the neuron, and when, when it does that, there's a, there's a velocity and an acceleration associated with that movement. The um, the uh, it, it's guaranteed to converge. So this, the, the reinforcement learning in QAI. Is guaranteed to converge mathematically. Okay, so that's very different than supervised learning systems, which I have no uh, mathematical proof of proof of uh, convergence. This one does. Okay, um, and what it's converging upon is moving this locator. What 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 uh, the result of this locator moving is velocity and acceleration and, and other um, things like the Bellman error, which are well known in machine learning, uh, which are a way to measure uh, the, the uh, accuracy of a, of a of a machine learning system, and in this case, it's measuring, uh, you know, the the, the either the uh, erratic nature or the non-erratic nature of the movement of this of this uh, locator on the track. Okay, uh, which is very much like the pole balancing problem, but applied in a very novel way. Pole balancing is a well-known reinforcement learning application. Uh, and I won't get into that; it's lots of information around the internet. But effectively what you're doing is you're learning to balance a pole on a, on a track where something's moving back and forth and the forces of gravity are trying to pull, it, pull the, the pole down. It's on a hinge. Anyway, it's, uh, it's been around forever. Um, but the point being is here, I, I, I take these metrics which are associated with the velocity, acceleration, and error that come out of the neuron very rapidly and I use that to generate signals. So, for example, if you think about in the human brain, uh, if you recognize something in the human brain, okay, uh, that that effect, there's a chemical stimulation that takes place where chemicals are released in different quantities, cortisol, what have you, okay, uh, in order to, uh, uh, you know, make the rest of the system uh, behave in a more attuned way. Well, that's exactly how it works inside QAI. The reinforcement learning does upon recognizing, for example, that there's randomness in the signaling that's taking place uh, or or the lack thereof, okay? Uh, What it does is it it it, it broadcasts uh, a signal, no different uh, in uh, in terms of its function than releasing uh, large quantities, for example, of uh, endorphins or something like that to stimulate different parts of the brain. Uh, these signals that pump out, okay, from QAI, also uh, from the neurons rather, uh, the reinforcement learning neurons, have the effect of, uh, of uh, stimulating other neurons to um, um, uh, an exaggerated state because something is taken, recognized something has taken place. If the if the uh, uh, input changes, okay, uh, that, sig- that signal that is clamped; it, it damps down and the system returns to whatever normal basis it was. The overall effect on the, on the neurons in the system is that because there's no connections and they're interacting just like cell phones, okay? But where cell phones are like interacting, they can they, although you're on a, on a telephone call with only one person, yeah, the cell phone actually sees all kinds of signals, okay? The neurons here are doing the same thing. They're looking at all these signals. And so in the same way as a chemical bond, as a certain energy level associated with that communication, okay? Um, a, 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 uh, a, not, a hydrogen bond uh, is 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 unlike a chemo- is unlike a chemical bond because the energy level is very low, okay? But nonetheless, it's it's based upon the same quantum quantum electrodynamic phenomena of you know force carrier exchange. It's just it's just a, a less energy associated with that exchange. All right. So, van der Waals interactions, things like that, are are as a result of the same quantum electrodynamic phenomenon, just less of it, all right? Chemical bonds are very difficult to break because of the energies involved, all right? That just means that there's lots of photons going back and forth, all right? Less so for a hydrogen bond. But, just like in water where hydrogen bonding can have a, a very strong effect because it's distributed across lots and lots of water molecules. In the same sense, inside QAI, the neurons have all these different interactions taking place and, and there, that's the basis for informing deep networks, okay? Deep learning networks and QAI are the result of these weak interactions that are constantly taking place. So these weak interactions can be influenced by more signals being pumped out. Does that make sense? Yes. Alright, so that's, that's how I, I get away from the unbiased nature of it, because it's completely independent of tra- of any kind of data that's coming in. It's, it's purely looking at information entropy. In other words, things which are less random uh, and, and, it, and it instantly changes over time. And and it will also, you know, so a deep network that might form a QAI will suddenly change, you know, if, if some new information comes in. It's never biased to any particular position. Uh, and so that's one of the reasons why, you know, in terms of the way it works with uh, uh, Bitcoin is that the uh, actual hash codes that are used to identify the indexes, for the blockchains, So each block and a block, each block in the in the, uh, in, the in the blockchain uh, is it's a tree structure, uh, uh, and that tree structure, uh, the links between the nodes are, are, are indexes. Those indexes are the hash codes. That's what's being calculated. Okay, um, what happens with QAI is uh, the, uh, the Bitcoin Core feeds QAI all of the hash codes. They flow into QAI as signals. And so the neurons of QAI are able to recognize them and analyze them and look for similarities. Okay? So in the same and 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 these similarities, okay, uh which could change over time and will. So there's no bias. It changes over time because you have different data going into the blockchain which results in different hash codes because each hash code is unique to a particular block. All right? if, a hash code, if a hash code is close to another hash code, it just means that, that, that those two blocks are close together, in terms of their similarity. So, like a molecular fingerprint. If you have two fingerprints that are the same, then you're dealing with the same molecule. All right? so, so, in the same sense here, the hash codes are like fingerprints for each one of the blocks. <clears throat> and, and so, uh, current mining operations uh, don't take this into consideration. They they just generate the hash codes using brute force data independent methods. What QAI is doing is by looking at uh, looking at these uh, looking at the hash codes in the public Bitcoin uh, uh, public blockchain database. Um, it's able to say, okay, we don't have to worry about these kinds of hash codes. The probability that we're going to have to generate something outside of this boundary is low, so we're not going to do that. So it directs the mining technology. Okay. To not focus on those types of, on those types of hash codes. Does that make sense?
0: Yes, it, absolutely. I mean, this is very promising. So, do, what stage is your uh, development of this uh, technology? Are you, uh, is it, uh, is it commercial? Are you developing any applications
1: based on this? Well, it's, it's actually being we're testing it right now, and uh, uh, the uh, it's running. In fact, right now it's running, and uh, the uh, 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 it's it's another aspect of QAI is that uh, it's based upon it's 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 a five dimensional model, mathematical model. Okay. Um, now this is it's a very complicated system. Now during the Cold War, I was working on uh, uh, some complex problems in particle physics, and uh, this is back in the late '80s. And uh, I, I started to take a what's called a digital physics approach to, to uh, the problems in the hopes that I might be able to uh, address the interaction. So what I was working on was uh, uh, quark interaction. So if you think about, you know, the physics standard model, chemistry is based upon quantum electrodynamics. <clears throat> the exchange particles there, everything happens linearly. Um, inside the nucleus of the atom, uh, <clears throat> we have uh, quarks that make up protons and neutrons. Um, the interactions between quarks are nonlinear, so the calculations are much more difficult to form, and that's what that was, that's what I was focusing on uh, were essentially uh, nuclear forces, and so I realized well I realized that I didn't want to use perturbation. Uh, the existing methods weren't uh, perturbation theory and so forth weren't working for me, and so I came up with this digital physics approach, which was it was a, uh, a string theory. Uh, 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 I took uh, something called Kaluza-Klein theory, which is the granddaddy of all string theories, and I adapted it to digital physics. And I quickly realized that um, the, what I'd come up with uh, could be applied to any problem. And so, I, so that is also integrated into QAI. Now, the, the thing that's neat about this is that um, the neurons in QAI, so this is a five-dimensional space. You have four dimensions, which are, you know, three dimensions plus time. It's continuous space. So it's a, it's a, in mathematics we call it a differentiable manifold, meaning that you can perform calculus on it, okay? Uh, so you can you know, figure out accelerations, velocities, and so forth as, it, as the space deforms. So if you think about, for example, molecules, which I know you're familiar with, if you think about a chemical bond, all right, a chemical bond is a higher energy area, so to represent it using this kind of digital physics formulation, what you would look like, would you see like a, a topology where there'd be an energy well which is deeper than the surrounding areas because that's where the chemical bond is taking place. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. We're, we're a hydrogen bond which is much weaker, which, which have a much weaker well, a much weaker energy well. So because QAI neurons work this way, they actually exchange information. Using this type of quantum signaling, uh, you have the same types of topologies, but in this case, the neurons exist in one of the dimensions in the in the, in the, in the fifth dimension, which is what's called uh, flux compactified, meaning that um, when the neuron expresses something sends out a signal, it basically is projecting in the other four dimensions because you know where it is and how it is interacting now because of that, it has the ability to uh, interact non-locally. So, if you think of a, uh, a piece of uh, cardboard or a piece of cardboard, and let's say the neurons are projecting to one corner of the cardboard. Let's so say it's a, a rectangle, and uh, they want to interact with another portion of the cardboard. That happens instantaneously. It's not necessary for them to traverse the signal space in the four dimensions because they are existing outside that. Does that make sense? Because they're projecting. Okay. So, so the value of this is that. Um, QAI can avoid computational local minima by uh, folding that computational space. So if you can imagine the corners of the cardboard that I just talked about, if if the the cardboard at each corner represents the beginning of the problem and the other corner the end of the, the solution, and in between all kinds of possible solutions but incorrect solutions, local minima. What QAI has the ability to do mathematically, the way it works, is it literally folds the space together because the neurons can just look at that other corner. So it bypasses all those false solutions and jumps to the, uh, the, the solution, which is the right solution, instantaneously. It's very fast. So it's a very different system uh, that in that, uh, blockchain is an excellent application for a couple reasons. One is because uh, it's solvable. I know the space because I used to do a lot of work in cryptanalysis. Uh, you know, for, for the National Security Agency. Uh, I, I understand the, uh, you know, the, uh, the SHA-256 because I helped with it to design its predecessors. Um, and uh, uh, using this data-dependent, I mean, think about uh, the Enigma machine of World War Two. okay? Germans had this machine to encrypt their communications. Uh, Bletchley Park in the United Kingdom uh, was able to break, that machine. How did they do that? The way that they did it was by data-dependent decryption. They were able to find out that every message that the German High Command would send would always have a certain phrase in it. And as a result of knowing that, even though they didn't know what the encrypted result was, they were able to use their own computer to basically converge on that particular phrase in the encrypted data. And then from there they were able to expand out and break the rest of the code. And that's why um, the, uh, when they, after they broke that, uh, they, they did not use the result of the breaking of the German codes uh, on all the different problems during the war. They, would be very, they were very careful so as to not uh, provide solutions to field commanders. In other words, they would say go over here because there's going to be a battleship or something. Okay. Um, Sometimes they wouldn't do that because doing so would alert the Germans to the fact that they've broken the code. And as soon as they would do that, all the Germans would have to do was change how they would be sending the messages and some of these things that they always stuck in there, Yes. okay? And the entire form, they would have to stop from scratch again. So in the same sense, so data-dependent decryption, breaking of codes, is the way to go. Otherwise you're dealing with an exponential problem. Alright? Right Right now, blockchain uses data independent hash code techniques, which is very elegant mathematically, easy to implement in hardware, but it's ridiculously um, high computational cost. That's why you have all these mining technologies out there using ASICs and so forth and so on. uh, application specific integrated circuits and so forth. With QAI, Analyzing the block, the entire blockchain because it's a real-time system, it's highly parallel. The GPUs uses FPGAs, it's very fast. Analyzes the blockchain, narrows down the search horizon associated with identifying the next uh, signature. The sure. next
0: that, that 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 seems very promising, and the data-dependent decryption I think probably is the way to go, and hopefully the real-time data. You know, we should not look at the data of the past because that already has so much biases. So we should try to go for real time data. And uh, if we are able to develop systems based on that uh, decryption technology, data, real time data decryption technology, I think we will be able to eliminate a lot of biases that are uh, already there in, (coughs) sorry about that, in geospace and emerging in cyberspace. So let's hope that we are able to do that. So what would you like to tell our global viewers and listeners, especially the young minds who are trying to make a difference through technology?
1: I would say, you know, in the context of our discussion today with respect to biased and supervised learning is to not accept, you know, the results. If you don't, if they don't seem right to you, uh, you need to challenge that. Uh, and and, and, uh, and uh, because otherwise, you know, uh, you could be a, you could be the subject of bias uh, and uh, it could affect your life. So you yeah. need to challenge it. Yes,
0: very true, very true. You have to uh, be educated. You have to be informed. Uh, You have to be intelligent. You need to understand where the complex challenges are emerging and you have to speak up. You should not accept uh, any wrong. You should try to right any wrong. So uh, there is a lot uh, that needs to be done in identifying, isolating and eliminating the biases that cause artificial intelligence to take decisions that either endanger human life all discriminate irrespective of whether it's uh, cyberspace or geospace is one of the biggest challenges facing machine learning developers today. And uh, thank you so much, Lars, for participating in Risk Roundup today. We appreciate your thoughtful insight on biased algorithms and for calling attention to it and also for all your efforts to correcting them as best as we can. So our global viewers and listeners will benefit tremendously from the information you provided on biased algorithms, on uh, your initiatives, and the risk it brings to the society. So even if a single individual or entity can come up with an idea to help remove the bias and help bring equality and fairness in cyberspace, geospace, and space, this Risk of Dialogue has been of service. And we thank you for that.
1: Thank you for having
0: me. Wonderful. So we at Risk Group call attention to risk impacting humanity at all levels. And uh, we speak out about our biases that bring inequality. Emphasize them, raising awareness of their existence and educating individuals and entities across NGI, that means nations, its government, industries, organizations, and academia, and making every effort to correct them as best as we can. By identifying the problem and raising awareness for it, we take the first step in beginning to address it, address it. We at Risk Group believe that risk management, security, and peace, they walk together hand in hand. Though security is related to management of threats and peace to the management of conflict, Risk management is related to management of security vulnerabilities as well as management of conflict. It is not possible to conceive any one of the three without the existence of the other two. All three concepts fit into each other. We believe that the security we build for ourselves is precarious and uncertain until it is secure for everyone across nations. Tradition becomes our security. So if you build a culture of managing risk effectively, it will lead us to security and security will lead us to peace. Let's manage the existing and emerging risk together. For more information on the risk conducts, to watch the risk conduct videos or hear the risk conduct podcast, please go to riskpolicy.com and do not forget to subscribe and share. Until next time, I'm Shri, host of Risk Conduct, signing off. See you next time. Thank you.